Today on the No City on the Sideline Dad Podcast, episode number 79. What does a former CEO turn yoga instructor in spending time behind bars help prisoners deal with their stress and also reconnecting with their children? That is my guest, Michael D. Huggins, author of the new book, Going Home. Oh, yeah, Home. <laughs> Next on the podcast, let's do this. Welcome to the No Sitting on the Sideline Dad Podcast, a podcast about a journey of discovery and conversations about not sitting on the sideline of life. Let's get involved. Here's host Joe Foley. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Hey, my name is Joe Foley. I really want to thank you for being here. And this is your first time. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, real seriously, thank you for being here. You two spend time means a lot. It really does. It means you coming back every time. Listen to the podcast. Really means a lot to me. Hey, I have an idea. A little experiment. See if you're actually out there and maybe you want to help me out. I want you to um, go ahead. It'll be a link in the show notes. It's, um, I saw this interesting way to support the podcast. I'm not sure with you. It's um, called Buy Me a Coffee page. It's page is called buymeacoffee.com slash sideline dad. If you really like the content and, and you really want to help support the show, buy me a coffee. You know, because I need all the caffeine that I get more episodes out on time because I seem to fall asleep at my desk. More coffee, more episodes. And also, I really appreciate if you decide to buy me a coffee. I really, really do appreciate it. I appreciate you. Next up, my guest, Michael Huggins, author of the new book, Going Own, the CEO of Self-Discovery Behind Bars. Michael was running a $2 billion business and Rise was selling halt in 2012. When he was sentenced to a misdemeanor prison term under the Responsible Corporate Office Doctrine, which holds executives for low-level business actions, Michael coped by practicing yoga and sharing his transformation tools with his fellow inmates involving in comprehensive conflict resolution programs and dealing with the day-to-day stress of life inside prison. He founded the Transformation Yoga Project, serving people impacted by trauma, addiction, and incarceration. You know, it's really interesting, too. I mean... Listen to Michael and talk about all the stuff we do want to talk about in the interview. He almost me almost had me really start really actually he has me really thinking about possibly doing some yoga. Yoga. Not yoga. Yoga. Things we share in this episode. Being vulnerable. Relationship important. Another topic that I found interesting is it's kind of a hot button issue, actually. Toxic masculinity. It's not what you think. It's not that commercial we've seen about the soap commercial. No, it's more about men who always, we always, um, we all that macho stuff like, hey, I'm a tough guy. But really, when we really, really want, want to talk behind, behind every tough guy, because it's usually a shield. It's usually you're trying to protect yourself. But really, we have feelings. It's okay to cry. It's okay to talk about your feelings especially when something's going wrong. Overcoming shame. Are we good enough? Are we good enough as dads? Are we good enough moms? Are we good enough? Because we always have to deal with that. Some people, are we good enough? Dealing with trauma. and How yoga can help with all, all this and, and also help finding oneself. Michael shares a lot of good information. So let's jump into the interview. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Hey, thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate that. Tonight, I wanted to bring you on. And, and, um, and you have a book called... Called Going Home. CEO self-discovery behind bars. 
well, one thing I was interested in, I kept reading it and reading it, and is that going ohm? Is that done on purpose? Yeah. So it's it's a takeoff of the yoga term ohm. You know, like people go ohm. Mm -hmm. So so it, theoretically, ohm is a uh, kind of a universal vibration that uh, can provide some peace and harmony and all that. Uh, so uh, for me, it's a good reminder. And then, of course, going ohm is is uh, an action word for me to um, try to quiet myself down with all the stuff going on around the world um, in my life, particularly. Uh, so for me, going home is a nice word. It has connotations that just calms me down, that it puts me in a place where it's like, okay, things are going to be okay. It's confusing to many people because they think it's either going on or some people think it's going home. And they're all um, going home actually makes a lot of sense too. But the word home. I was like, I was a great title. I'm like, oh, I got to ask, I got to ask that question. Just yeah. I got to ask that question. Well, one thing I was reading about your, in the title of the book is the CEO who um been going and being incarcerated. Yep. How did that come How did that come about? Well, my case was a very interesting case and in, in some sense unique in that I went to prison for uh, a misdemeanor charge for something that's called a responsible corporate officer, which is, um, I think, apropos for your podcast, because I know you deal with these kinds of issues. And so uh, I was managing a large business, about a $2 billion business, and some something illegal activities happened lower in the organization. And I didn't know about it, quite honestly, but that's not an excuse in the eyes of the law. And so I ended up being charged with this misdemeanor for uh, actions that happened under my watch and that didn't stop, but I didn't know about. And ultimately, I ended up getting prison time for it. Very uh, unique type of circumstance, but um, it put me on a, a journey that I never expected to go. But but here we are. <laughs> um, how traumatized was how traumatized was that when you first realized you were going to prison? Well, you know the uh, here's what I would tell you, Joe. The the wheels of justice. Um, they turned slowly. And so there mm. was huge gaps of time through this whole process. So if, if I just very briefly put that in perspective, the, the actual complaint that came in from the FDA, uh, for the company that I was managing uh, or, or was a senior manager of, happened in 2004. And uh, I didn't get charged with this misdemeanor until 2009. So it was uh -huh. almost five five years went by when you're just kind of watching and wondering what's going on, and then another two and a half years went by before I actually was sentenced. So the the complaint came in in 2004. Mm -hmm. I was charged 2009, and I was sentenced at the end of 2011. So I had a lot of time to think about this, and and during the last probably year and a half was preparing myself for the uh, possibility of getting prison time, and that's when. I decided to um, make a pretty dra dramatic change in my career, if you will, that I left the corporate world and I ended up leaving it unrelated, somewhat unrelated to uh, all the activity that was going on legally. And I had uh, pursued this idea of becoming a yoga teacher because back in the day I had um, terrible back problems and I didn't know it at the time, but they were due to stress because of the job I was in. And someone recommended that I try yoga as a relief. And I was happy to, to do anything for relief. And, and once I started taking yoga classes, I felt relief in my back, but then I also felt something else going inside that, that maybe my life wasn't going in the direction that I wanted it to go. I wasn't 
on the outside, I looked real happy. I had a, obviously pretty successful career um, as far as perks go and, and someone on the outside looking in. But inside, I was starting to feel a bit unhappy. And uh, these two worlds came together when I was charged with this, this criminal misdemeanor for something I didn't even know about and um, the yoga world. So those two came together. And, and uh, so the day I was sentenced, I prepared myself and I, I had come up with this mantra. And I know a lot of people, some people like mantras, some people don't like mantras. And, and I, I came up with three simple words and they were joy, surrender, and true self. So mm-hmm. the, day, the day I was sentenced in the courtroom, I told myself, joy, surrender, true self. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to find some positive thing out of this experience, some way to find joy. I'm going to be, I'm going to surrender because I can't change the fact that I'm going to prison now. And then finally, I'm going to try to be myself no matter what the circumstances are. So yeah, so it was a crazy situation. It was very traumatic for me, but at the same time, I felt that this was a test for me to put together some of the tools that I had been practicing so so much uh, to take it with me to, to calm down in a, in a very... Um, uh, uncomfortable environment, if you will. How did it, how did it make you feel as a, as, as a father? Boy, um, it was really difficult, Joe, in the sense that the day I was sentenced, my family was there. And this was a very unique situation in that most people don't get prison time for this kind of uh, a misdemeanor. And so it's a, it's a feeling of helplessness, feeling of a little bit of shame, uh, mm-hmm. because the judge thought it, that I should be taken to prison right from the courtroom. So I only had the briefest of uh, goodbyes with my family and my wife. And it was quite difficult saying goodbye and watching everybody tear up and, and feeling that I'm starting this, this sentence, but they're also going to have their own version of a sentence and there's nothing I can do about it. So it's a very helpless feeling, frustration, and, and there's definitely shame in there. It's like, how did we get here? And how does we get there so that they didn't do anything wrong <laughs> yet. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to feel this, uh, as much as anybody else. What is your experience, um, being, meeting other men in, in prison? I mean, uh, there's something that was interesting to me because we're, we're one of the topics, one of the, of the uh, words we're talking about is toxic masculinity. Yep. I'm not sure if you want to discuss more about that. Yeah. So, uh, well, uh, let me, let me address your first part of the question. So, Here's what I would tell you as far as the, the uh, men that I came to know uh, during my time. And I would tell you this, that, that people are people. And mm-hmm. we, we definitely want, we should talk about this idea of what is toxic masculinity and all that. But at, at our core, we're all the same. We have this feeling that we want to be wanted. We want to be loved. We want to have contribution. We want to have connection. And we just have many times hurdles or challenges to get through to, to experience those conditions, if you will. Mm-hmm. So when I first started my sentence, I actually was in a holding cell because I got sentenced early in the morning. The hours went by, men were transferring in from other prisons and they were either testifying in court or they were waiting to be sentenced or, uh, or being a witness. And as they were coming in, the, this holding cell, probably 30 men were in there, tight, tight quarters. And they started talking as if I was at a business conference seeing my colleagues I hadn't seen in a few years. You know, hey, Joe, how you been? Where are you doing? What you working at? Uh, oh, I got transferred to this prison. I'm not working in the mess hall or I'm not working in janitorial services. Very similar conversations that, that, that I had in the business world 
was a big distinction in that at the end of the day, I got to go home from my piston feedings and now these men are going back to prison. But my point of that is that there is this idea of a connection and there's this society and our, and our, our wanting to share our lives with people. That was the first thing that hit me was that, oh my gosh, this is a sort of an alternate society that we don't know so much about that we probably should know more about and understand more. And then to your second point about this, this idea of toxic masculinity, well, it seems like that's a, that's a hot topic these days. And I think there's one where uh, there could be many definitions for what that is. And I think when people look at prisons or, or if you will, tough guy behavior, they think of um, toxic masculinity. And, and I think probably the prison scenario is the stereotypical place where, where that comes into play. And, and my experience is uh, I didn't have that so much. I saw, I saw it. Um, it's, it's a shield put up to protect ourselves. It's really a protection shield, but I think there's a way for us to get past that. And so for, for me, this idea of toxic masculinity is, is one where, my definition is one where, where men, we can't express our emotions openly, or there's a feeling to be manly that we have to be tough all the time, or in another way that anything other than that uh, makes us feminine or weak, you know, we, I think we have this inside of all of us. We have male energy and feminine energy, female energy. And it doesn't mean we're weak at all. One side is maybe uh, strong and the other side might have more emotion or compassion. So I think those two can coexist. But the idea that they, they, they can't coexist is part of the problem with this idea of toxic masculinity. Well, it's interesting, too. I mean, I know as myself as a young man and myself when I was growing up, you know, we don't, we're, not, we're not supposed to cry. We're not supposed to show feelings. We're supposed to be tough, tough boys. Really, that's not that's not really a positive thing to show, especially I have a son, not to show my son like that. And I can imagine in a prison situation or in a situation people are incarcerated, that if you show a sign of weakness, that could be could be trouble. It can be trouble. And to me, some of these things kind of go into and out to this idea of, of dealing with trauma. Also, I think they're integrated mm-hmm. uh, because... If you're if you're dealing with trauma, and I would argue that incarcerate anybody who's incarcerated, men or women, uh, that's a traumatic event. And most of the people who have are in the system, if you will, have had highly traumatic experiences. So the first thing about that is when we experience trauma, is we tend to go back to this fight or flight mode, and that's just self protection. It's preservation. And many of the of the folks who are end up incarcerated. They tend to fight rather than flight, if you will. They, <laughs> they, they, uh, so I think that's the first mo is this idea of, of fight, fighting versus uh, flighting, and that's truly is a protection mode. And the challenge um, for for those who are incarcerated, myself included, but but even in to general terms, how do we create that safe zone, safe space where men don't feel like they have to put up these walls, where they feel like they can be vulnerable. So they can just start to discuss their emotions in a in a positive way, not a, not not coming from a way of weakness, but coming from a, a position of strength. Uh, that's really the challenge, and that's really the area that I have the most interest in because I think that's where there can be tremendous breakthrough on a personal level. Any chance you have any um, stories you can share with some people you come in contact with? Well, I, so I have quite quite a few actually, and one of the examples would be 
during my time while I was incarcerated, I had a job. And my job was as a, a GED tutor, actually a pre-GED tutor. So any of the men who transferred into the prison, they would have they would be a record check to see if they had a high school diploma. And if they did not, they were required to enroll in the pre-GED as a pre-GED class. So I was one of the teachers, the tutors there. And as it turns out, um, one of my students was the biggest, baddest, meanest guy in the prison. And he had about a third grade, fourth grade reading and writing level. So he was my student. And we got to know each other pretty well. Prison that I was at um, had a, a little bit of a gym. I use that word gym lightly, but it sort of loosely. But there was a place for us to work out. And, and he was a bit of a, a gym rat. I was the yoga guy. So I was, that's another whole story about trying to do yoga in prison. But we kind of hit it off from, from the physical side of things. And he, he helped me to learn how to lift weight. And I taught him some poor yoga postures, uh, breathing exercise to, to kind of calm himself down. And so over a period of time between the physical activity and uh, the tutoring, we, we created this, this trust or this bond. And he just opened up to me about his shame he had in that he, he was actually had a long sentence and he, was, he only had one year left. And he was shameful that he's going to be released and he still can't read or write. We talked about his background and how he came from another country and just never took the time or focused on education. And he was in the streets, uh, you know, making a living the way he could. And so once he let that wall down, we just opened up, not as a teacher to a student, but as man to man and just talked about, okay, what do you really need to do? And what, what are his goals and aspirations? And his goal was he wanted to be a personal trainer when he got released. So we just changed the, the philosophy of teaching him to read and write to focus on, well, how are you going to be able to train other men if you can't read or write? So we went into aspects about doing some basic math to calculate body mass index, to calculate weight loss, to have him be able to put together a checklist uh, or, or an intake form for people who wanted to work out. And his eyes lit up. He was so excited because he was, this is what his passion was. We had this connection where we had a trust that he knew I wasn't going to be telling other people about his situation. And he made unbelievable progress. And so uh, to me, that's one example where uh, that can happen. I'll, I'll give you one other quick one, Joe, in that mm -hmm. with another fellow who was uh, probably my best friend there and a guy named Bull. And he uh, the big guy and he's from South Jersey and uh, had a pretty significant anger management issue. And he happened to be probably my closest and my best yoga student. So we we would talk and practice yoga all the time. And we were in the gym working out one time and somebody was, if you will, hogging the equipment, meaning that we're in, you know, trying to do bench presses and he's, he's got that bench press area taken and somebody, you know, he's also got the uh, pull-up area. So he's got like four four stations because he's kind of rotating back and forth and he just wouldn't let anybody take it in and that's really not proper etiquette to be honest with you while you're when you're in prison so so bull just lost it and was about to uh fight this guy and i just i looked at him and i said bull you're a better man than this i said you've been practicing mindfulness you've been practicing self-control so you need to be practicing that right now and he did. He he just de-escalated almost immediately that, that situation. And I know in the past, if he hadn't 
we hadn't had that bond where we could talk that way to each other. And he would call me out too. It wasn't a one-way street. Um, mm-hmm. Then I know he would have gotten into a fight. And then he de-escalated and we went on and had a wonderful, you know, experience working out that day. So these are, these could be considered maybe little things in life, but for those two individuals, they were pretty significant. And I, I think showed tremendous growth for them. Was it, I mean, I think we talked about this before, but being vulnerable, is it hard? I mean, vulnerable, being vulnerable for men in particular. Well, it is, <laughs> it is. Um, it is in the best situations, right? I mean, just think about our own situations and our own friends, male friends, and we get together and what do we do? We talk about playoffs. We talk about <laughs> work. We, we don't really don't talk about what's really inside of us as far as um, our hopes and dreams or, or feelings or emotions. Um, so we, we're not encouraged. And I think that's, that's certainly not something that's unique to the prison experience. It's, it's I think, part of our, our culture and our society. And in order for men to become vulnerable, it takes work and it takes a lot of a lot of effort. And I keep going back to being able to create some type of space where men can feel like they can let their guard down, but there has to be trust on the other side. So there there has to be a feeling that I'm gonna if I let my guard down, this is not gonna be used against me. And um, that's where the conditions have to be set up properly. You can't just go out drinking one night, you you know that's you talk about your emotions and then, you know, you, you tend to, it tend to come out when your guard's down. That's because you've been drinking. That's not really the healthiest way to deal with that circumstance, you know? Um, so there, there are, there's been a lot of activity actually movement for men to, to address the idea of being vulnerable to, to get to these core issues, to know that the, the things that we're feeling or thinking about deep inside, we're not alone. We, we all have them. Yeah, we just mm-hmm. suppress them. Well, it's interesting too, because we don't, said we don't want them to use against us, but too, but it's almost like when we are with other, with other men, we just talk superficial stuff too. We do. And, um, so this is where I, I get on my high horse a little bit because, um, um, I feel very passionately about the power of yoga to be able to address that. And so for my own personal journey, probably felt it fell into that stereotypical category. And somewhere along the way, as I started practicing yoga, it, it, it morphed beyond just the physical practice and moved into more of a um, internal work, if you will. And I also found other men doing the same journey and was able to uh, to get into that position to be vulnerable. And I think I, I credit that to, to yoga for sure, because I, I've done it in my personal life, but also while I was incarcerated, the yoga practice that I started, it ended up moving beyond traditional yoga into these very topics that you and I are talking about right now. We would have a yoga practice. Then after practice, we would stay a little longer and, and maybe sit in silence just to get our thoughts together and uh, collect ourselves. And then eventually we stayed even longer and we just started talking. And probably a group of 20 of us that it became an ongoing program that after the yoga practice, we would sit or lay down and meditate for a few minutes. And then after that, that we would start to uh, share anybody. It was not, it was no requirement for anybody to speak, but there were discussions and people just started talking about their, I, I call peeling away the layers. And mm-hmm. you look at the, the prison environment, you can, one could argue some, some of, the, of the men, they're dealing with uh, this idea of violence uh, as, as their, as their go-to uh, 
way of coping with things. And if we start stripping that away, then we, we get to things like anger and beyond anger, there's frustration and beyond frustration, there's shame. And for men, that's a big one, at least from my experience, because at least while I was incarcerated, the men felt that if they committed a crime, then they felt, well, I'm not sure I deserve the sentence, but I deserve to be punished. But where the shame comes in is that what's the impact on their family? Families, mm-hmm. their, their children, and they're missing a father and the impact that has. And, and I think there's enough stories out there where we know that the terrible impact on families for children for uh, where one or both parents are incarcerated, it's just, it's a terrible thing to do to a child. And the men know this. And so there's a deep sense of shame. Uh, and we talked openly about that. And men were start crying about that. And then, of course, if, once we get back past the shame, mm-hmm. we get to the core. And I think that a lot of us feel this, whether you're incarcerated or not, is just that we're not good enough. We're just not yeah. good enough. Uh, so, <laughs> I, yeah, so I think that those are all the, it seems to be the, the range of emotions we can go through. As a father, too, myself, I can, I can relate to those frustration, guilt, shame, and I'm not good enough. I mean, I, I mean, I don't openly say it to myself, but I don't know how you feel, but I don't openly say it, but sometimes you think those things. Am I doing enough? Am I, I'm frustrated. I'm, I feel guilty because I didn't do, I didn't say goodnight to my son or something like that. I, I can relate to some of those um, things and those words. Yep, absolutely. And, and at the time, look, we have to live our lives and, you know, we have to work, we have to earn a living. And mm-hmm. so there's consequences, the choices we make. And in my particular case, when, when I was in the corporate world, I traveled extensively. I was away weeks, weeks at a time, multiple weeks at a time. And I missed school plays. I missed uh, soccer games. Um, I did the best. I did the best I could, but I wasn't there a lot. And so it was a trade-off. So on the one hand, I felt like I was a good provider financially, mm-hmm. um, but I wasn't there for a lot of the things. And so I still live with that today, even though I've at the time. Do what you can, and I, I don't always regret it because I can't go back in time, but it's still there in the back of my mind. You know that was a trade. You know, was that the right thing to do to to take a career um, uh, versus spending more time with my kids? And uh, we we, you know, we just live with that. I want, I want an interesting question. Um, have you ever spoken to your daughters about being vulnerable about that stuff with your daughters? Yeah. So um, the the crazy thing about my situation, and this is what this is what I tell people is like. I would never wish this on anybody. I really wouldn't. But for me, it was an unbelievable experience. And, and I don't want to, I'm not trying to glorify prison because that was a terrible experience. And I don't, and, and there's so many men who are uh, stuck in the system uh, unjustly. But, but from, from a point of view of, of just having everything taken away, if you will, and uh, in my particular case, it was a fairly uh, public case so um people in the community knew what was going on so i didn't really have any more defenses <laughs> i had nothing really to hide there was no more skeletons for me and um so it it, it was it was helpful my, my girls were uh one was i think 21 or 22 the other was 18 or 19 so they were at the age where i could have that conversation with them as a adult as opposed to a father having a conversation to a young child that's a different conversation so from a father to a, uh, a grown woman, it was a very open, honest, you know, straightforward conversation. So I was very grateful for that, to be able to have that conversation. Well, it's interesting, too. Another thing I would like to talk about is um, fact. 
fathers and children together. Something we we talked about in the in the pre-interview. And there's something that a program that you you work with. So, so the, so the conversation goes like this: that we had a stereotype of of incarcerated individuals, particularly men, that this this toxic masculinity that they're the guard, everybody's tough with everybody, and you know there's some of that that goes on. It's no question, but. By and large, the vast majority, at least from my experience, the vast majority of the men are, are actively wanting to be to improve their situation, meaning not only their time while they're incarcerated, but to make amends and to be better fathers. And so there are many, many grassroots programs that have been developed. And the one we talked about was it called the FACT programs, Fathers and Children Together. And this is the program, certainly I didn't start. But uh, we're aware of, and it's actually a prison in um, in Pennsylvania where the men themselves got together and said, "We would like to spend more time with our children. We would like to mend fences. We would like to establish a relationship with our children." And many times it's difficult to do that uh, while you're incarcerated for the obvious reasons, but also because many of those men are not married now. The mother of the children had moved on, or maybe there's animosity. Of, uh, by the mother because of the situation that they put her in of trying to raise a child on her own with limited income. So it's it's not like a straightforward uh, custody situation where, hey, you're going to see my child this weekend or that weekend. It's a little more complicated than that. But these men have really worked through that and developed a program inside while they're incarcerated to have a group of men deal with these issues uh, of how to be better fathers and how to have connections with their children. And that program is incredibly powerful program. It's been well-received. It's been well accepted by the prison, prison administration. So there, these, there are these kinds of programs that are being developed there, grassroots that men are actively trying to um, have a connection with their family. So that's not the only program, but that's when we talked about it. And it's a really powerful one. We do some yoga with them to just with the fathers and the children together to try to provide a little mindfulness and uh, deal with nervous energy. And just, it's actually nice to practice as a family. Well, interesting too. I can, I can imagine there's a stressful situation when the father meets the child in prison, the prison come to visit. It must be tremendously stressful. Well, it is for, for many, many reasons. Um, I, I know during my time, I know several men who refused to go to visitations because of the shame. They did mm-hmm. not want their children to see him this way. And, and, you know, you're wearing prison garb. You're not as if you're wearing your casual clothing. So that, that's that's a personal decision that men are making that I don't even want to see my, I don't want my kids to see me this way. So you're starting from that level. And then if they can work through that and saying, well, I really want to see my kids, so I'm, I'm going to do it. Then you have to go through the humiliation of, you know, the strip searches and all the things that go in with being incarcerated to spend a little time with, with your children. And then I can tell you from personal experience, that, that time goes so quickly, and there's the there's a bit of a high when you have that visitation, and then they leave, and you're going back to your cell, and there, there's this inevitable bit of a crash, like, oh, you know, and then you, you get yourself back up, and you wait for the next time there's a visitation. Uh, so there, there are these highs and lows that you've got to manage uh, while you're trying to um, establish a, or reestablish a relationship with your child. Must be difficult because I mean the child might not even want to be connected with the dad in prison. It must be tough. It is tough because for just what you just said. Because in in some situations, there um, the mother is maybe not excited to have the child meet with the father. You know, the, 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 all the social issues that 
that we're all dealing with come into play uh, even even more so in this situation. So, um, and these these kids, a lot of them are are dealing with trauma, uh, not only with their father being incarcerated, but even in everyday life, just going to school or the neighborhood they live in. So it can be, uh, yeah, it can be a very challenging experience for these men to navigate through. I also think about too. It can also be a real positive experience. I mean, the opposite of being a, a real positive experience for the father and the child, and probably helps them to get through the time they're in prison. Well, that's it. That's that's the um, end game, and I think I'm glad you brought that up because that's what we see, and that's what I hope people can to see in that that there is this um, shared humanity or shared capacity for compassion for connection for relationships that that all men share and more times than not it's the good things that are happening and there are good things happening in bad places uh and so they keep going at it and there's progress being made and, and it's like anything else these things don't change overnight but you you've got to sow the seeds to start a relationship and be committed to it and work it and uh, understand that um your child is going through a lot of things too and, and may not be in a good state today that you really want to have a great visit. They may be having dealing with issues that are beyond anything that you're aware of. And so um, it is quite challenging, but from what we've seen, there's been huge amounts of, of progress made in, in families uh, connecting. Another thing that I found interesting too is the Transformation Yoga Project. I'm looking at the page now and one thing I found interesting also was trauma-sensitive yoga classes. You had over 2,500 of those. It was kind of interesting statistics. Um, more than 16,000 people um, participated and served. What, what, what is the Transformation Yoga Project? Yeah, so it was this idea that, that while I was uh, doing my time, um, I was teaching yoga and realized that uh, it's, it's all this somehow involves trauma-related. And this idea of trauma-related yoga this idea that's very invitational, meaning that we don't we don't give orders, but we don't say, "Hey, lift up your leg and step it over here and move your back foot." It's not like a uh, boot camp kind of a thing. It's very invitational over time, and so so the participant is able to make a decision on his own. And so for those who are incarcerated, that's that can be empowering because there's very little decisions you're allowed to make while you're in while you're inside. And so even little things about making a decision about whether to do, do a pose or how deep you go into the pose can be empowering. And, and then we do that over time, getting into poses that may be a little bit uncomfortable and having the participant make a decision if they want to stay with the pose, go, or go deeper into the pose, maybe relaxing while they, while they breathe or back off the pose because they feel it may be hurting them. Over time, that translates to things off the mat, meaning that they can calm themselves down in difficult situations. So, for example, if you're in uh, chow hall and somebody cuts in line, mm -hmm. you're going to get angry. And so the question then is, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to really take action or are you going to calm yourself down and, and put it in perspective that, look, it's not the end of the world. Uh, you're still going to get your food to de-escalate so you can make rational decisions and not be in this idea where you're in this uh, state of trauma or state of panic, this fight or flight mode. And so, so that was the idea behind it. And then it, when I was released, I struggled, quite honestly, whether I should go back to the corporate world or whether I should, should explore setting up a nonprofit that, that teaches these tools to other individuals who uh, had been dealing with trauma. So ultimately, I decided to 
stay with this to to start this nonprofit organization, and it's been incredibly well received. I am so blessed because we have a, a now a, a, an amazing team of people. We have over 40 individuals that are trained in teaching trauma-sensitive yoga to multiple prisons. We also do a lot of work for people who are in uh, dealing with substance abuse in uh, recovery centers. So this idea I had of trauma-sensitive yoga, um, uh, I was fortunate to find people who embrace that and actually have more knowledge than me about it. <laughs> and because it's a real thing, it's not just not proven in science. And so the organization, it's been my life dream now. It's, it's my mission. And uh, honestly, why we're talking is because uh, I believe so passionately that this idea of, of empowering ourselves to deal with life challenges. You know, for me, yoga was a way of doing that, but, it, but there's other ways of doing that. As long as we, we take the uh, initiative to, to work on ourselves, then I think we can have better relationships with others. Is that, I mean, there's all kinds of benefits from yoga too, like stress relief and is what other stuff, what other benefits from yoga besides stress relief? I always say there's like a, there's like a um, cascade of, of, of benefits. Uh, typically we start with the physical benefits, at least that when we talk about it. So in my particular case, I had chronic back problems and I mm -hmm. thought I was going to get surgery. I started to practice in yoga and my back problems went away. I then realized that, gosh, my problems were more stress related. So things like that, that the others would be can actually help you sleep better. It can help you make better decisions about what food you eat. Um, I'm not saying about dieting, but just life decisions about this idea, is this going to serve me or before I eat that extra donut or something, you know, can I take, <laughs> can I take a moment to really understand is this impulse or is, is this a, a sugar talking, sugar rush? Can I, can I calm myself down to let that, if you will, discomfort pass? And because it's going to pass eventually. And so these, these tools that we learn over time can help us with better eating habits, sleeping. And then it can also help us with maybe clarity of decision making. So we used to teach the yoga um, with the men's the police athletic league. And we had a boxing program that we were teaching yoga with. And we had a lot of the kids came to us and said, man, I, I love this yoga because it slows everything down. They said, it's like I can see the punches coming in slow motion and so I can react to it. And I'm like, yes, exactly. That's that's what it's all about. So I think that yoga can can help us slow down the craziness of our everyday lives, so that we can see things in a more rational way and make decisions that 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 best serve us in the most informed way possible, without simply reacting to something. I have an interesting question. I mean, I'm, maybe I don't know if this has something to do with yoga, but visualization is that something to do with yoga? Uh, so visualization has a lot to do with yoga. It's a big topic, uh, maybe beyond this, this discussion, but because there's a big there's a big debate about visualization in the yoga community. When mm -hmm. we do when we do trauma sensitive yoga, for example, our mm -hmm. visualization is very straightforward. Sometimes there's other visualizations that's a little more grandiose. Although we we believe in in kind of body sense sensations. So if you're in a pose and let's say it's a twisting pose and it's uncomfortable. Um, so we might have you visualize, we might provide some language that would help you visualize yourself uh, relaxing in that situation and maybe suggesting that you soften your muscles a little bit or you, you follow movement of air into your nose, through your lungs and let your um, chest expand. And mm -hmm. these kinds of things are, are proven to, to relax our system. Um, so we try to keep it to bodily sensations uh, or physical sensations rather than 
other kinds of visualization. So other people do things that are more, you know, envision yourself, you know, two years from now, get the best job you want. I mean, there's a there's a place for that, but that's not typically part of our our yoga practice that we that we use. Well, I'm wrapping up. I guess final thoughts. You want to leave with um, fathers and or men who are going through the the situation you went through or any trauma. What would you leave? What would you leaving some advice? So, so my my advice is that our thoughts are generally worse than than reality. I know in my case, again, it's somewhat unique, but the worry I had about going to prison and uh, the, the sleepless nights I had about all this, uh, my family what it was going to do to all of them. I wouldn't say it was needless, but the reality was much, wasn't, wasn't as bad as I, as I had imagined it to be. Um, my relationship with my daughters is stronger than it's been when I was traveling because honestly, we let down the garden and we've talked about it openly. And so having an, having an open relationship has been very positive experience. So if we can get out of our heads a little bit, um, <laughs> And that's a great first step for us. <laughs> well, where they, if they, people want to reach out and want to connect with you and where they can find your book. Yeah, that's great. So the organization is called the Transformation Yoga Project. And you can, you can just find our website and it's the same, transformationyogaproject.org. You can always email me. My name is Mike Huggins. And uh, my email is the same. It's mike at transformationyogaproject.org. And also, I just released a book, and you mentioned at the outset, uh, Joe, it's called Going Own, mm-hmm. a CEO's self-discovery behind bars. And I actually have a separate website for that because I have a lot of information about the topics we just talked about, and that's goingownbook.com. If you check that out, and there's uh, reach out to me. I love to talk to people. I'm very accessible. And of course, um, we love to talk about our programs, and anybody has an interest in uh, bringing trauma-based yoga into their area, just reach out to me. I would love to talk to you. Well, Michael, all links will be in the show notes. I do appreciate you sir, being on the podcast today. Yo, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, wrapping up, I want to thank Michael for being the guest on the podcast. You can find more about Michael Huggins over at mdhuggins.com. And you can find all links in the show notes over at nosittingonthesideline.com slash 79. Also, please reach out and comment. If you have any questions, any concerns, or you just want to get, find out my social media information at nosittingonthesideline.com slash contact. Well, heading out the door, I want to thank you for listening. Until next time, take care. Give your kids a hug. Tell much you love them. And I really do appreciate you. God bless. See you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please subscribe to the newsletter to receive updates of the show and helpful and useful tips. This has been a production of Foley 42 Media.